Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, joined today by Tade Oyerinde, who's the founder and chancellor of an organization called Campus. We're going to be digging into opening up pathways, scaling access into rapid programs developed kind of like community college. Tade is going to talk to us all about that in a bit. Before we get into that, we want to welcome you to the show. Tade, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks for having me, Michael. And good job. You nailed my last name. It took practice and there may be even an additional take in there for those of you who are <laughs> not listening live. But yeah, it's it's wonderful to have you on. We always like to get to know our guests better right at the top. Can you share with us your origin story, how you got to this point in your professional life? Yeah, it's been a long and windy road. To go back to my childhood, uh, I was born and raised uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. It's Nigerian parents, so I'm Nigerian-American. Got a twin brother and an older sister who's brilliant. And so my parents decided, okay, well, let's homeschool because my sister was going to be slowed down in school, in public school or private school. And so uh, we were homeschooled until high school, mm. three of us. My parents were much to their disappointment. Tosh, my twin brother and I didn't quite reach my sister's level, but we were homeschooled nonetheless. I think that's actually where a lot of my ideas around education come from. Mm. Like we had a very non-traditional K-12 experience or at least K-8 experience. Um, so I've always had a fairly unique lens on what education could look like. Mm. And then my mother was also getting her master's and eventually her PhD or her doctorate of education while she was homeschooling us. And so it was like fairly experimental. Yes. Uh, so she would, you know, she'd articulate, hey guys, I'm going to try this experiment. Yeah. You know, this model. Like, right. Let's see. This works. I think parents of twins, you have an N of two, you have, you, right away you have an experimental and a control group, you know? Exactly. And then on top of that, she's just a tinkerer. So her and my father were um, very open-minded about you know, their approach to, to educating. And so it's hard to imagine how that can have any impact on my psyche and my approach. So I think it's likely that that had a big, a big role in, you know, my taking a curiosity into education and then also this more of a out-of-the-box approach to how mm -hmm. education can be done. So eventually, yeah, I went to flight school. I was going to be a pilot. And then decided that instead I actually wanted to be an aerospace engineer. So I studied aerospace engineering for three years mm -hmm. and started a company when I was an undergrad. Built, building a social discovery platform is what we called it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with chat roulette, but it was mm -hmm. sure. uni roulette. I see. It was kind of like chat roulette, but you had to have a university email to get on and yeah. And so ended up going full time on that. Investors came, gave us some money, but said you had to take a leave of absence to university, which I did. Mm. And it's been a, that was a long time. It was 2012. So you uh, kind of Zuckerberg, it sounds like. You pulled a bit of a Zuckerberg there. I thought I was going to be the black Zuckerberg when I took a leave of absence, but a company didn't end up working out. It was a fad. It was yeah. like, we grew really quickly for seven months and then all the growth fell off a cliff. When I saw this, happening with clubhouse i was like man i know how this story ends. yes it's really, yes it's really tricky here and you know for a different podcasts i can go into all the nuances of what we tried and what didn't work but mm -hmm. eventually the thing we actually did have that had value was an engineering team that was pretty good at building ios and android yeah. apps mm -hmm. which by 2014 was actually a pretty valuable skill set every university in the world uh, thought okay we need to be in the app store we don't know exactly what the app needs to do yeah but we know we need the app store so we went around and basically became a consulting firm building apps for you know, universities. Yep. Uh, you know, a simple thing. So the students can see the dining hall menu or 
yeah. you know, events happening on campus. Your point's also a good one. Even just the brand halo effect of actually being competent enough in 2015 for university of whatever to actually have an app that is connected to student life. That in and of itself, you're kind of like breaking ground as a digital organization. Yeah, there were only a few players back then. And so that's how I got into ed tech, specifically yeah. really building custom solutions for universities. My brother got bored and decided to go back. He was at Oxford when we were hmm. doing our first company, or he went back and did that. And then my friend went to go work at one of our other friends' companies, and I decided to go full-time on education technology. So that's kind of how I got into education technology. And then that ultimately has led you of late to be focused on campus and also your role, your job title is interesting in that you're the founder and chancellor. So you've gone into the education space pretty fully on this venture. Can you talk to us about the problem space, why you wound up focusing on what you're focused on for campus? Sure, so it's, it's a pretty weird and fascinating journey that we've been on. So in 2016, I actually started Campus Wire as a software business. Mm. The, the basic vision for Campus Wire was in the same way as Slack was taking over in the workplace, mm -hmm. Discord was taking over for gamers, yep. real-time chat is replacing email as the communication modality. Yep. Someone should create a really great, robust, modern communication platform for online classes. Yep. So I kind of had this idea since I was a kid using Skype and homeschool sometimes. Yeah. I was like, but what would it look like to design something like this for higher ed? Uh, yeah. So yeah. Zoom plus Slack, but way better for higher yeah. ed use cases. Mm -hmm. And so wrote code for a couple of years. And then we decided we didn't want to sell it to the universities themselves. I don't know if you could tell from my personality, but the enterprise sales cycle, it's not really my right. It's not really Plus the homeschooling a little bit outside the institution. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah. So our approach was let's go directly to faculty. Mm. And so let's sell to faculty at, at some institutions, faculty have budget within the department to actually procure software. Yeah. The other, the faculty would actually require that their students would pay for it like a textbook. So mm. we had some functionality that replaced functionality that they were already charging students for. So like clickers, you know, those like the sure. clicker and like audience yeah. response stuff. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, we built that into the platform as well. So yeah, they felt comfortable replacing the clicker and having students procure it. But I used to fly around the country and I'd meet these professors and I'd sort of get in the room with them and you know, show them our software. And I was, it was 2018, I was at UCLA and I get into this professor's office and he's got an air mattress off to the side. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I'm an adjunct professor. I make like mm. 44 grand a year, 42 grand a year. Like I, I can't afford to live anywhere near Westwood. I live five hours away, drive up you know, sleep in my office Monday through Friday and I go back out for the weekend. And I was just completely mind blown. I yeah. was like, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. I was like shocked. Like UCLA is one of the greatest institutions in the country. Yeah. You know, it's not an inexpensive school. Like, how is this happening? And so that's why I discovered what I call the adjunct faculty crisis. I actually came across a Berkeley study that found that one in four adjunct professors in the U.S. lives on at least one government assistance program, food, mm -hmm. housing. So it's like, this is, yeah, it's really hard to, to sort of grasp and imagine and, and just totally shocking. The second thing that I discovered through that approach of working with professors and, and serving with Campus Wire was what I call the sort of community college low completion rate problem. Yep. So we just saw on the data that students at four-year universities were far more likely to keep using Campus Wire for months and months and semester after semester. Right. Students 
at two-year schools, they barely use us after 30 days. Mm -hmm. And at first we thought it's something broken with the tech. It turns out you know, most students who go to community college are going to drop out with, with no degree, um, no credential. They're not going to transfer to four year. They're just going to drop out. Mm. Um, about two thirds are going mm -hmm. to just drop out with no, no degree and never get a bachelor's or admissions. And so it's like, wow, what would it look like to try and solve both of these problems at the same time? Mm -hmm. Help adjuncts at top universities who are, in my experience, very often the best, most passionate teachers. Right. And then help them earn better by teaching this community college population. And so the first thing we did was we looked around and we said, okay, are there any examples of community colleges that have very high relative to the sort of national average associate's degree completion rates, graduation yeah. rates. And so right, right. came across the City University of New York. Yeah, shout out to uh, CUNY. I, I have to shout out to CUNY. My wife is uh, an employee of Queens College, which is part of the CUNY system. Thank you for their service. Yes, yes. Very grateful for their service and, and their leadership on this issue. With their ASAP program, they've demonstrated now relatively at scale, about 70,000 students have gone through the program, that you can achieve about 51% graduation rates by doing a few things. They give every student a Metro card. Mm -hmm. They pair up a student with a support coach, basically who has only 100 other students or 99 other students and whose job is to help you, you know, get through and navigate college. Yep. And then they require the students to be full-time enrolled, which is key. Mm -hmm. um, you know, psychologically, the students say, hey, I'm actually going to do this full-time. This is an important priority. In, in addition to my work, I'm, I'm going to prioritize school. And then they, they made it sort of the tuition inclusive of all the fees and below the Pell Grant, which right. is very important because most right. of these students are Pell eligible and, and nickeling and diming them for, for fees can, can actually, you know, cause a major barrier to be erected that leads to them dropping out. So we basically said, what would it look like to build within an existing community college ASAP as the model to serve yep. this population of students, but then add powered by adjunct faculty from you know, the top 100 universities in the country. So that's the idea for campus.edu. Mm -hmm. And so we actually acquired a small community college in Sacramento about a year and a half ago, within which we've been executing on the strategy. So, so that, that's what we're up to. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. It does immediately bring me to when you're starting something new, the opportunity to do things differently. And in particular, in the post-pandemic world, the way people think about hybrid learning, online learning, whether you need to be constrained by a campus, your named campus, you know, so I'm sure you've thought about this, but I'd love to hear a little bit about how you think new about the use of a physical campus, how that connects to online learning. You know, you're the chancellor, how you're kind of designing the vision really here for how you might deliver community college capabilities with high completion rates at scale. Sure. I mean, the first that that we made early on was that community college was going to be a primarily online endeavor mm -hmm. post pandemic. If you think about four year university, you know it's a dating app. My mom always wanted me to find a wife at university. It's a friend finder because you yeah. leave with lifelong relationships. You know it's about brand and prestige. You know that can help unlock a specific tier of employment opportunities. It's all these additional things that will require. I think some in-person component. Mm -hmm. Community college, on the other hand, you know, is less of a country club for young people and more of a, like, you're here to learn, you're here to get your associate's degree and then transfer or get a job right away. It's, it's a bit more transactional at times. And specifically, 
I mean, the vast majority of community college students are commuters. They don't live on campus. There's no sports clubs or sports right. teams. Also, just to jump in, as I understand it, a lot of them might already have full-time jobs. They also may have- Most of them are working. Family commitments. There's a different profile. You, you mentioned Pell Grants. Flex Lives. Yes. And then online allows for more scheduling flexibility and access flexibility that make it- It's more, more accessible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was the whole initial- obsession that I developed over this problem space was how can we make community college more accessible, but with high graduation rates. Yep. And if you looked into the data, it was clear that asynchronous online courses were never going to deliver anywhere near 50%. They wouldn't even get to 30% completion mm -hmm. rate. Look at all the big MOOCs. Right. You know, completion rate 5% or below. Mm -hmm. And so the interesting insight about COVID was that we really had a large introduction to synchronous online learning. Prior right. to the pandemic, vast majority of online learning was asynchronous. Yep. The, the idea was, well, what if you could deliver high quality synchronous online learning mm -hmm. to still engage students and, and, and therefore deliver better graduation rates, mm -hmm. you know, hopes replicating the success of CUNY's ASAP program, but then it was still with the accessibility of traditional online. And that's, you know, that's, you know, kind of the vision. So with campus, you know, we provide every student with a laptop, about a third of our students, we actually give them a Wi-Fi enabled laptop. If their Wi-Fi at home is too slow, we provide them math and writing tutoring. Of course, faculty from top 100 universities. And basically we try and provide all the wraparound supports that they're going to need to graduate at above 50%. That's the goal is to replicate the success of, of CUNY's ASAP program, but at scale. Yeah. The synchronous part is something I spent a lot of my career at Kaplan working specifically on what we called live online. And it was always that the world wasn't ready. And then suddenly it was, you know, suddenly the, the great stampede of 2020, where every higher ed class had to go into an online, really into a Zoom room for the most part. And it was a little bit of a survival of the fittest. It was a little bit of a chaotic situation. But to your point, through that trial by fire, there was an emerging class of adjunct-like talent who were also training up on the online format. And what's nice about that is the constraints you might have around, I don't know if I can get Tade to teach this class in Sacramento on Thursday night. Once you go online, you can teach from anywhere and you can reach anyone really around the globe. What's that been like? Because it sounds like you've been out in this space really through this transition, the other element is what I've heard referred to as, you know, digital readiness or digital inclusion, where when the pandemic started, there was some real, even public health challenges around access to the internet, access to online. We've cleared a lot of those hurdles. And it sounds like you've been very intentional in your design, where the fact that you're giving, you know, even in some cases, Wi-Fi enabled laptops. What's it been like watching that problem space? It feels as though we've actually made real progress in terms of figuring out how to get people access to online really over the last, say, four or five years. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of investment in broadband, like at the government level. There's there been, I think, a lot of yeah. sites that have been made over mm -hmm. the last few years. Even the stimulus think, package, right? That, that was part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I also think in terms of Faculty and student desires it's night and day mm. compared to sort of pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. Like pre-pandemic, like a sort of infinitesimal number of faculty were interested in actually teaching 
sort of synchronous online classes, at least from, from these top, top 100 universities. It wasn't yeah. really something that anyone had in, in their mind as, as a possibility. Mm-hmm. Now we, we find faculty all the time for looking you know, from Princeton, from UCLA, from Morehouse University who are looking mm-hmm. for synchronous online teaching opportunities. And, and I think that's a big part of what enables campus today that, that didn't exist pre-pandemic. Right. And of course, student side, previously students had a very negative perception of online learning. It's kind of a joke. You can get your dog to do your homework and nobody knows. I think now there's like a perception of synchronous online learning where you can actually get to meet these professors. It's not like a MOOC where it's like, I'm learning from a professor at Princeton. Right. And you never actually meet them. They never know your name. Yeah. You're going to spend three hours with them, you know, with 50 other, you know, 50 other, 60 other kids in the class. Yeah. You can go to office hours. You can build relationships with them. And by the way, if you knock it out of the park, you can ask for a letter of recommendation when you want to transfer into a four year and, and they can actually write it for you. So I think the pandemic really enabled, you know, sort of the opportunity that we're seeing now. And it really did shift students' expectations around online. My hypothesis there has been proven true at this point. In California, about 40% of community college students are enrolled exclusively in online courses. Mm. And then it's, it's two numbers. And one in the 30s, the other in the lower 30s of students, about 37% of students are doing hybrid. And then maybe 33% are done only in person. So it's really d- divided. But solely online is the plurality experience now for community college in California. And I think as we see the numbers come out from every state, they're going to reflect a similar pattern. Yeah. Dwayne Matthews is someone I follow on LinkedIn, and he was just writing an article about what he called stranded brilliance. And when I was thinking about that turn of phrase, which I really like, it reminded me very much of the work that you're doing, where it does feel like prior to a technical conduit, a way to kind of connect these two groups, there was this wasted untapped teaching potential among your adjuncts. And then there was this unreached population of folks, you know, because even, you know, beyond the folks who had to shift maybe to go online, there's also folks who maybe otherwise couldn't have had access to instruction if they didn't have online. If you're stuck at home, if you're traveling, there are different ways in which the access is really more fully enabled. How do you think about that through like an equity lens? Because it does feel like there's maybe some perception stuff and some sort of mental model work that needs to be done for folks to understand really the pathway is here online. But I think on the other side, it does feel like you can really unlock some untapped potential in some meaningful ways. No, I think that's right for sure. I'd say a a couple of things. First is one of the major advantages of synchronous online is that you're no longer limited to learn from the people in your neighborhood, the Mm -hmm. best professor at X in your neighborhood now learn from the best professor at X, basically in your time zone or three neighboring time zones. Like, right. And that's a fundamentally transformative development because with students, keeping them motivated, especially for the community college population, is half of the ballgame. It's really half the ballgame. And when you can say, hey, you can learn from a Howard University professor, it fundamentally shifts their excitement, mm-hmm. their optimism, their ability to envision a better life for themselves Versus just saying, you can learn from the local person at, you know, down the street. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that really does unlock a lot of opportunity. It's definitely not homogenous across the states. There are amazing institutions. If you're lucky enough to live in New York City, you have CUNY. If you live in Miami, you have Miami-Dade, an amazing institution. If you're in Dallas, you have Dallas College. Again, so it's very heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. But if you're in 
rural Arkansas, the nearest community college may be 45 minutes away. Yeah. And genuinely may not be one person there who knows full stack software development. Right. Um, what to teach you Python or, or whatever mm -hmm. the entry level programming course you need is. And so it really does increase access. And then on the, on the faculty side, these adjunct professors, they've got a real challenge. And a majority of professors say, and most of our universities are adjuncts. And so the question is, how do we ensure that adjuncts can have a stable income and they can still get all the benefits of working at, you know, Princeton or Columbia, whatever it is, and, you know, prestige, the, the sort of intellectual stimulation of being a part of that faculty base and, yeah. and sort of congregating with like-minded peers. But then, you know, if there's a way that faculty can do what some folks are calling gig work You're right. on the side, you know, mm -hmm. teaching on campus, that's great for everybody. And then yeah. you unlock access to those professors. Right. You shouldn't have to be able to get into Columbia University to learn from a Columbia University professor. Right. And, and that's kind of our thinking here at campus is like, what would it look like for everybody in the country to get to learn from amazing faculty? And it's not just, oh, all faculty at top 100 universities are amazing. That's not the case. And it's also true that there are many great faculty at local community colleges. Right. However... You know, what we tried to do is find the best teachers at these top universities. Mm. Being from a top university is primarily about inspiring their students to dream bigger and think farther than they otherwise would. And then on top of that, we look for great teachers, people who love teaching, who are genuinely passionate about helping students grasp these complex concepts and get confident in their mastery of the material. That should be something everyone has access to. Everyone in the country should access these great faculty. Yeah, makes sense. And it's also the dynamics. It, it brought me immediately to sort of the notion of coaching or the the guide on the side versus the sage on the stage, where when you're synchronous, what you're looking for in some ways is, does my teacher know me? Are we connecting in an authentic human way in real time? You know, we made it this far without me talking about AI, but there I did it. You know, it is a time where, you know, stuff can become very depersonalized. It's tough to kind of reach this population and get them to stick and believe in themselves and, and motivate. Can you give us a little more on the motivational element and how that maybe factors into how you train and develop your faculty? Well, my contrarian bet here is that the more AI we have, the more important humans become at certain things. And mm -hmm. I think education is cheap among them. You know, our goal is how do we leverage AI to do all of the things? that humans shouldn't have to do so that we can free up humans' time to do all the things that humans are best at doing. And so building a relationship, you're not going to build a relationship with your AI professor, at least not this generation, maybe like three generations from now, right. that might be a real thing. But, you know, we're looking to build relationships with real human beings who know our feelings, who understand, you know, what we're going through. One of the things we've found in, in our data is that faculty who represent the lived experiences of our students mm -hmm. have much higher likelihood of having better student evaluations, but also students just basically building a deeper relationship with them. Right. If you're a first generation student, mm -hmm. first in your family to go to university and you're talking to a professor who's like, oh, I know what that was like. I've been where you're at. Like that creates a bridge between the faculty and the students that we've seen a such a powerful driver that helps improve those persistence rates. Mm -hmm. So I don't see how in our lifetime or in the near term, you know, at least with the generation that we're currently teaching and, and we'll be teaching for the next few generations, AI is going to replace that. It's really about how do we leverage AI 
to make sure that the FAFSA is submitted correctly so we don't have yeah. to waste time checking, rechecking, and re-verifying. How do we use AI to you know, automate attendance tracking and some of those more mundane aspects of, of running a college class? Mm-hmm. That frees up professors' time to interface with students, build relationships with students. That's what I think we're really excited about. Yeah. Two other elements I want to make sure we touch on. One is the skills and the competencies that you're teaching, the domains that are emerging as you're thinking about this population, they're taking classes and those classes are typically aligned with the future of work in some sense. This is about really a pathway to more earning potential, better career upside. So I want to get into that first. And then since you're more on the ed tech platform side, I'd love to hear a little more about the platform perhaps after that. What about the experience are you focused on? I was really struck by the connections to social platforms and stuff that folks are using in the rest of their lives. It does seem like you have kind of a window into that. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear a little more about how you think about how the skills workers need are changing really fast and how campus can perhaps help with that whole problem. You just said it, Michael. I think it's changing so fast. It's really hard to teach to a speeding bullet. You know, if we built curriculum, I think ChatGPT turned a year today. Yes. If we built curriculum, you know, nine months ago, based on you know, the state of the art at the time, it would almost, at least half of it would be obsolete today. Yeah. So part of what's challenging is like, how do we, you know, teach in the way that's sufficiently abstract that what we're teaching is going to be relevant for the next five years, 10 mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. As students are going to be going to the workforce. It's not a solved problem. These are like, if you could be a fly on the wall here in our office and we're debating these things every single day. Yeah. What we've started with is just to have a course that's compulsory for all students that come through campus which is AI skills. Mm. And so we've taken the approach of this is a powerful new technology and any kid who comes to campus and complete the campus is going to be amongst the most proficient at utilizing these tools, no matter what they do, whether they go to four years or they go start working right away. Mm. And at that course level, we're reevaluating every month. <laughs> like what are the, the latest and greatest developments in you know, leveraging these AI tools? And how do we make sure that our students in this one course, AI skills, that they're learning them? You know, that's something that we're doing today. Longer term, we are looking in a sort of more long-term process of what does it mean to have an associate degree of business in a world where AI and large language models make it very easy for certain business functions to be operated. What does marketing look like right. when you can generate marketing ideas by, you know, asking a question to mm-hmm. artificial intelligence? What does legal, what does business law look like? Entrepreneurship is an interesting space as well, Absolutely. I imagine. What, is all, I mean, what are all these dimensions of you know, business or you know, our paralegal program? What does that look like? Or our full-stack software engineering program that we're launching next year. What does full-stack software engineers need to be in a world where, where it can help you write code? It's actually interesting. But 20%, more than 20% of our code written last month was written by AI. Mm. You know, that we ship, that our engineering team ships. So it's like, what does an NC level programmer look like now in this world? Right. Do you need to know how to use Copilot? Is that a core competency? I think it certainly is. And so we're constantly reevaluating these things. We're constantly debating these things. We're definitely, as an institution, leaning in. We're not, you know, saying how do we ban this or block this or anything right, like that. Right. But, but there's still there's still a lot of unsolved problems and open debates, to be honest. Yeah, and I imagine you have what what are your advantages against the the more standard institutional model is that you're 
coming out of software development, product development, you know, mindset where you can pivot fast, you can try to get experimental cycles out there and then learn from them and continue to iterate. That seems very contrary to the way a lot of the establishment within higher ed operates. Can you expand a little on that? Because I imagine, you know, I still think of that as a solopreneur. You know, I can I can pivot super fast because I just go wherever I want to go. But I imagine when you're lean and you're coming from sort of that software development, agile, you know, listening to your customers kind of framework, I imagine, you know, a lot of what I see in higher ed is older institutions trying to adopt that mindset but you're kind of coming in with that mindset fresh. Yeah, I'm, we're attempting every day to just do what's best for students and make sure that our students are maximally prepared either to transfer to a four-year school and be successful or to start working right away. Long-term, that's the only thing that really matters in terms of our brand and in terms of our success. Yeah. One of the benefits of our faculty model, working with these amazing adjuncts, is the people who want to teach on campus yeah, they're, they're making some you know, sort of incremental income, but really they're, they're excited about the future of higher ed and, and they see this as an innovative model. Mm. And we rely on them heavily for pretty much everything that we do. We have a faculty member who's going to be the program director for every degree that we offer, who's in charge of making sure that they're constantly reevaluating efficacy of the programs. And then, of course, the utility of the program in a dynamic employment world. I got to say, we, we're super lucky to have amazing faculty from all over the country with different perspectives that sort of lead that process for us. Yeah. And I know you're tapped in, you have some high profile investors in Silicon Valley and what's emerging there. Where do you look for inspiration outside of education? How are you connecting the dots there? It does seem like in some ways, maybe you're a conduit for some of the more innovative thinking around upside in technology ventures, maybe applying some of that moonshot thinking to some real problems like the ones you're addressing with campus? I think moonshot thinking is a perfect way to put it. It's what attracts everyone who's involved from the employees here at campus to our investors, like you know, the founder of ChatGPT, the founder of Discord, you know, Bloomberg Ventures and others, to our board of trustees, former or current presidents from Morehouse, Miami-Dade College, you know, LaGuardia College in the CUNY system, Dallas mm -hmm. College, like, these folks are all looking for a moonshot. The, the fundamental reality is our higher education system hasn't benefited from much of the increased potential that technology has afforded us over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. We've not fundamentally exploited internet. We've not fundamentally exploited mobile phones, laptops, broadband. We have to figure out how to get all those increased advantages into higher end. That's kind of like High level, I think what excites the Silicon Valley folks, you know, again, most people are still learning at community colleges from the best person in their neighborhood. Right. And in some cases, that's a great teacher. In other cases, it's not. How do we make sure that everybody, regardless of your geographic location, gets to learn from the best teachers of computer science or business or marketing or entrepreneurship, period. That's a big piece. And then the key thing that I think aligned everyone was major frustration around debt. You can't look at America's higher education system without being really frustrated and maybe disgusted hmm. by, you know, what we're forcing students to do. We're, we're forcing in many cases, students to say, Hey, if you want to get a great job, you want to build a great life, you want to have a great career, you have to go to this 
get this degree. And most, for most students, you're going to have to take on debt to do it. Right. That's not a sustainable approach. It's not reasonable. Right. Especially when, to your point, a lot of community college students aren't even finishing. So like they're just taking on the debt with no return on that exposure. You know, that's the worst of the worst is the folks who take on the loans and don't get the increased earning potential by actually completing the degree. That's the worst of the worst. And that should, that should be banned. You know, that should be eliminated as quickly as humanly possible. And so the good news is our government already has a pretty generous package to support students. It's called the Pell Grant. It's a needs-based $7,495 a year, and more than half of community college students are eligible for it. Problem is, you know, far too few institutions either get the completion rates right, like the four years do, but then the four years can't figure out how to lower their tuition, that threshold, while still supporting their business model. And so it's like, well, how can we learn from the best of what the four years are doing and the best of what the community college are doing and, and sort of keep the cost structure below that program threshold, yeah. um, then increase the completion rates towards the four-year levels and hopefully eventually get into the 60s. That's the goal here of campus. That's like a big idea that excites people outside of education. Most of our, we do have great education investors like Matt Greenfield and uh, Rethink Education or Wei and her, and her team at Reach and others. But I think fixing education for higher ed making it more accessible to the students who currently it's not serving consistently well. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that excites, you know, Sam Altman and Berg folks and everybody else just as much. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, going a little deeper on the software side, anything around the experience, you know, we're recording this in zoom. I imagine there are lots of places where you're trying to get to feature parity and just make sure it all works and it's integrated together. But what about the actual experience of a live online classroom? What kind of functionality you're looking at? What kind of user experience stuff are you really focused on there? Yeah, there's a lot. It, it really, it, it's really about two things. The first is active learning. So, you know, sort of Sage on the stage, as, as you called it earlier, that's not going to work in online. In online, I can just tab and I can be on Netflix and literally one second like you can't do that you've got to keep the students engaged and this is something we work with faculty there are many great teachers who don't necessarily have all the active learning built into their toolkit and so we help them master the sort of active learning approach and that basically means you know you're you're keeping your lectures engaging by asking students to participate Mm -hmm. polling them with questions in real time again full circle this is how we this is how we got started you're, um, you know, you're having them talk to your neighbor, just like in church growing up in Atlanta. You know, turn to your neighbor and say neighbor. Like, you know, we, we do all that stuff and we help the faculty master those tools. Still a long way to go. There's so yeah. much. Build. If you see our roadmap, I have five years worth of tech that we need to improve and build. But I think really thinking through how do we make sure that this feels a little bit more like a learning game show mm. that student is really participating in than a traditional sage on the stage or in lecture. Um, I think that's a big part of it. And then additionally, I think the second piece is really about making sure that faculty and success coaches have the tools that they need to evaluate what students are doing and yeah. are struggling and, mm. you know, and prevent sort of those dropout, stopout scenarios. You know, there's some disadvantages to being online, even in a synchronous environment, mm-hmm. many advantages. And one of the most important is you, know, you can measure things more effectively. So we know not just, okay, did student Michael Palmer, 
you know, did he attend class, but did he actually like raise his hand? Did he actually like speak? Of course um, he did. Come on. Of course. Who, who do you think you're dealing with? But yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and it's like, okay, you know, in a physical room, you can talk to your neighbor, but what if your neighbor is not that interesting? <laughs> okay. Well, in a, a virtual classroom, we can you know, talk to your neighbor, but then, you know, we can switch your neighbor around whenever yeah. we, and then you can talk to different people, get different perspectives. And so it's, it's really about giving the faculty access to that data to say, hey, I know that Michael's always talking in class, so I'm going to go to Jennifer and yeah. I'm going to go to Ivy and I'm going to get them to participate. That sounds like a smart move from my perspective. <laughs> That's amazing. And then, you know, we always like to look out ahead, you know, what emerging technology, we talked a little bit about AI, you know, it sounds like you're pretty plugged into what's emerging and what the, the future of learning, future of education, future of work might be. Looking a little bit further out ahead, whether it's specifically for campus or more where you see higher ed or education, even the homeschool angle, I think is really interesting. But is there anything out there trend-wise, anything you're noticing that's getting your wheels turning when you think about where education is heading? Oh, I mean, there's loads. I think dual enrollment, speaking of homeschool, is mm. really exciting. We actually have about 50 dual enrollment students. These are homeschool high schoolers mm. who are taking classes on campus learning from these amazing faculty and really getting a taste of college, getting a head start on college. I think that's really exciting. And I hope that that continues. And that's not just something that's happening at campus. If you look across higher ed uh, at the community college enrollment, dual enrollment's the fastest growing sector of, of community college enrollment. So I think that's the national trend that'll persist. Hmm. I also think that the skills that we need, you know, entry-level workers to have and to master are shifting. And they're shifting pretty quickly. And so I think that means two things. The first is, of course, you know, we need to train and teach towards, you know, where the skills requirements are going to be, not where right. they are. You're going to make me quote Wayne Gretzky, but I'll, I'll hold off. Skate to where the puck is Skate. moving. Not yeah. Where it is. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Great rugby coat. That's key. But I also think that it's also going to mean that people who are five, six, seven, ten years into their career are going to have to come back and, and pick up some of these new skills hmm. and they're going to have to do it quickly. And it's going to have to be convenient. It's going to have to be affordable. Right. It's not going to require waiting until the fall semester or then paying a huge lump sum of money to go hmm. and, and take on a, you know, a master's degree. There's going to have to be a, a much more flexible and nimble way yeah. to stay relevant and, and sort of update and refresh our skills. So we think a lot about that. What, what do certificates look like that roll up into associate's degrees and mm. how do our, make sure our associate's degrees roll up in the four-year. So I, th I think those are probably two of the things that are most exciting coming down the pipeline. Yeah. And I could imagine how campus CDU could play a role in that kind of mid-career. Pretty much everyone nowadays needs the AI basics course you were describing that's part of your community college. And then the profile of a community college student, to me, seems a little closer to the lifelong learner, certainly than the four-year residential undergrad but uh really fascinating stuff i'm talking to tade oyarinde from campus edu it's been a wonderful conversation if folks want to learn more it's campus.edu is the website today thank you so much for joining but as we wrap up i always like to give some takeaways to our listeners who stuck around with us this far is there anything you want to put some emphasis on or bring home your final closing remarks here as we wrap up today's show i think there's a lot of work to be done if you're working in education, if you're an entrepreneur, roll up your sleeves, come and help. I think, you know, taking big swings like this is really important for our country and for the world. 
And I think folks are surprised, you know, kind of back to your question around some of the investors we've been able to, to bring on board. People care about education. It's something that everybody cares about, mm -hmm. but it, it's going to take new thinking and new people and new approaches combined with old thinking, old people and old approaches. That's kind of, you know, the holy grail. We, 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 um, we decided to acquire this college and do all of this within the confines right. of an accredited institution, mm -hmm. advancing its existing sort of mission, as opposed to starting a new mm -hmm. Thai college. Boot right. Camp I mean, like you're, a, you're a chancellor, like uh, that's an intentional choice to, to, to choose those approaches, right? A deliberate choice to work within the regulatory framework. I think accreditation, I think the sort of traditional higher education approach combined with this innovative fast moving approach is the winning formula. I guess I just leave people with that. It's, I think it's the combination of the two. There've been too many examples of Silicon Valley folks who completely dismissed traditional higher ed. And I think they've been wrong. And then of course, there's too many folks in traditional higher ed who are completely resisting, um, you know, the, the, the new technologies that we have, but our goal is to sort of build a new model, um, and, and demonstrate its efficacy. And then hopefully more and more institutions can replicate, you know, what we've done just as we were inspired by ASAP. So I, I guess that would be my final, my final thought. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Fantastic stuff with Tade Oyarinde, who's the founder and chancellor of campus.edu. Check it out, find out what they got going on. If you're interested in adjuncting and and they pay well, which is great. Tade, thanks again for joining me on today's show. And for our listeners, thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe write reviews, do all the good things. This is Trending in Education.